The time is 1998. The place is near Sable Island, offshore Nova Scotia. The situation is as follows. The FSO Nordic Apollo is undergoing regular operations, receiving product from the Rowan Gorilla 3. Most of the crew is sleeping as the engineering team changes watch at midnight. Second engineer Robert Boudreau is awakened by a troubling call. A key engineering crew member has not turned up for his shift. The search begins. This is Legacy Survival Stories. Legacy Survival Stories. Welcome to Legacy Survival Stories. My name is Dan Latramoy, and I will be your host once again. Today's show uh, brings a bit of a different flavor. Uh, we're going to explore a story uh, from an individual who's been in the industry for a long, long time. He was a, in gypsum transportation for about eight years. He operated shuttle tankers or worked on shuttle tankers for about 18 years after that. He's currently a Transport Canada Marine Safety Inspector. So this is a person with a lifetime of experience in the marine industry and an incredible story to tell. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, please welcome Robert. Boudreau. Robert, how are you, sir? I'm good. Doing good. Thanks, uh, Dan. That's great. That's great. That's great. So let's set the tone right off the bat. Uh, the story that we're going to be talking about today, approximately what year are we talking? I believe it was approximately 1998. 1998. So at that point, uh, how long had you been in your marine career? Like, where are you at in your career at that time? So, uh, in 1998, because I started my career in 1983, it was 10 plus 15 years, 10 plus, 10, 10 plus 5, 15 years. At the time uh, of the incident, I was, uh, I was on the, uh, I was on the Nordic Apollo and I was a second engineer on board. Okay. So... Second engineer on board the Nordic Apollo. So first, let's start with you. So what does a second engineer have to do to be a second engineer? Is that is that about normal for a person who'd been in the industry for for 15 years? Would, is that like sort of a, about the right time to become a second engineer? Uh, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Although I, I, I had uh, taken a different uh, route up to uh, where I was. I... I hadn't gone through any kind of uh, university or college or anything like that. I had started at 17 as a as an OS and a tender young AB uh, on deck. And then the, there became some openings in the engine room. And after a year or two, I started working in the engine room. Worked my way up uh, on the gypsum boats on old uh, steamships. Okay. Mostly. Oh, old school steamships. <laughs> yeah. Still a few of those kicking around. Yeah. So for the folks at home... What's an OS and what's an AB? Oh, yeah, okay. Ordinary seaman and the AB, able seaman. So I, I started off on deck. And then after about a year, I switched over to the uh, engine room, working as an oiler and so on, and as a rating in the engine room for some years and so on. And then I started, at that time, the uh, nautical school was, uh, had just moved to Port Hawkesbury, so it was good. I was working on the Apollo, was a month on, month off. So on my months off, I could go to the school in Port Hawkesbury. Oh, okay. It was really cheap then too. Uh, they were big uh, uh, money to, for to uh, for uh, training for uh, students. It was twenty five dollars a week to attend the school. What? <laughs> and and a lot of it was one on one because a lot of it was upgrading, and they had a full staff of uh, teachers. So, so it was a really good deal for the first. That's an incredible deal. So that is how I was able to get the second engineer. Otherwise. 
uh, it probably would have taken longer. But the school was a, it was it was cheap. It was top of the line education, and it was close. And I was working a month on, a month off. So it all of it allowed me to uh, move. Well, that's that's fantastic. Twenty five dollars a week. That's yeah, that's what it was. I yeah. can't take my kids to I, McDonald's for twenty five bucks. Okay, so you're you're doing a month on a month off. So you're you're on the Nordic Apollo. So tell us about the Nordic Apollo. Is that is this in your? This would then be in your shuttle tanker days. Yes. Okay. So shuttle tanker means that instead of like a conventional tanker bringing oil from one port to another, for say, it was taking oil from an offshore installation through usually like a bow loading arrangement, and then on, on board. So the Nordic Apollo was a F- FSO. It was floating storage offloading, as okay. opposed to the FPSO, floating production storage offloading. So, so it was just a, a great big storage tank. And it could store 129,000 cubic meters of crude oil from Sable Island, or approximately 1 million barrels of crude oil okay. it could store at a time. So it would discharge that to another tanker. They would usually tie up bow to stern, stern to bow. So they were loading and there was, it was low. It, the, the, the vessel that was taking the cargo from Apollo would have been directly behind it. They were tied stern to bow. Okay, so just so I'm clear, then, so you're 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 on a shuttle tanker. You're going out there, and you're uh, we're staying out there on station. We just stay there. Oh, so are you? We received the oil from the uh, Rowan Gorilla Three okay. at that time. The setup from 1991 until nine until 2000 was like that. So the Rowan Gorilla Three was there. The Apollo was there. Okay, so the Rowan Gorilla Three would be the thing that would be out there doing it the was drilling, pr- uh, f- uh, production, and drilling. Okay, and they had storage. Zero capacity, basically. Uh, so you basically so, sat next to them as their the great storage big storage tank. locker. So okay. when this, when with, this, if we had to leave for anything over five meter seas or anything like that, production had to shut down because they didn't have any storage on the RG three. So we were the storage tank. Okay, all right, and then another <laughs> shuttle tanker would come up to you. You would discharge onto them. They bring it back to market to shore to, to wherever uh, New Brunswick or to uh, Newfoundland or. Okay. Uh, uh, come, by chance, come by chance or to uh, the convoy there in St. John. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. So, and then and then the Nordic Pole would just stay there, basically. And we'd stay there. Because okay. if we moved, well, then they had no capacity. So, if, if there was production happening, the Apollo was there. Okay. All right. So, now we've set the tone. We're, uh, what do we say there? We're in the incident, which was 1998. 1998, approximately. You're on the Nordic Apollo. You're, it's functionally oil and gas work, even though it is a vessel. It's oil and gas work. Yeah, you're, it's oil and gas. And you're, you're directly, and uh, as anybody who works in the industry knows, the closer you get to that, that production stem, that, that well, uh, the better the money is. And there you are. So, that's great. All right. So, can you set the tone for us on the day of this incident? What What's going on? Is it just normal mm-hmm. operation? It was uh, it was normal operations. As I said, I was second engineer on board. The chief engineer was a, a great Scottish gentleman that I looked up to and, and learned a lot from over the years. His name was Arnie Hudson. And there was two captains on board, two Norwegian captains, because one was going to be finishing his time uh, after being there for a few years, you know, I mean, on and off. So there was two Norwegian captains on the board at the time, two of them. So you have two Jostin, captains? Yeah, two captains. One was like, as a, they were doing a handover, you know. Oh. So um, so one was new to the ship. He had never been on the ship before. 
He had only been on the ship for about three days. His name was Stein Tarlson. And the Jolstein Halle, the guy that was on his way out, I believe, yes, he, uh, yeah, so he was on his way out. So there was two captains on board, two Norwegian captains. Those were the only two non-Canadians on the vessel at the time. Okay, like it was so all Canadians the, the rest on board. is populated by Canadians? Okay. Yeah, it was all Can uh, Canadians on board. About 35 people on board, maybe. Okay, that was going to be my next question. About 15 people in the engine room and maybe 15 people on deck or whatever. Most of them from Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, let's say the Atlantic region. Most of the people were from the Atlantic region. Okay, understood. And uh, so it was just a normal uh, day of operations. Uh, loading uh, was, was slow, you know, because you, you only load as fast as they can produce it. So it's not like going to a port and getting loaded in 24 hours. The loading took... a a month, and then a shuttle tanker would come up to you uh, once a month. So you just do an offloading of about six hundred and fifty thousand barrels once a month. So just out of curiosity, was the was the shuttle tanker that came out there to to collect the product from you? Were they on like a set schedule, or did you say, "All right, it looks like uh, you know yeah. next next week we're going to hit our hit our hit our hit our levels, and you can come out and get it"? It, it was pretty much usually a regular vessel called the Nordic Challenger, but. Uh, but that changed sometimes. And sometimes the rig wanted to do some maintenance. So they would shut down. We'd leave. Go to Halifax. You're talking the Ro Roman Gorilla. Sorry, the Roman Gorilla yeah. 3 would shut down. Yeah. Or their production. And then they would give us like a, a week, you know, that they don't need us. So we'd take the cargo ourselves and go to St. John, New Brunswick, or maybe Philadelphia or somewhere like that with the cargo. Wherever they're paying. Wherever, yeah. yeah. Or, or uh, Point Tupper. Okay. Point Tupper, you know. So the, so sometimes we would bring the cargo ourselves. Okay. But at this time, we were just loading cargo. It was a normal day. It was 1998. It was, uh, it was not wintertime. That much I can remember. How was, uh, how was the weather? Normal day? Yeah. Two, yeah, two three-meter swell sort of thing out there? Yeah. Yeah. Anything over five meters swell was, we had to get off. So it was, whatever it was, it was less than five. I remember later on uh, a scene from the back deck that we'll get into, but uh, but uh, it, well, it wasn't winter. I, I remember it was nice outside when we, okay. when, when we were outside doing something. All right. So and it was a normal day. The, uh, we were about fifth guys in the engine room. The way the engine room was set up is there was three cop, three watchkeeping engineers, three watchkeeping uh, oilers who were assisting the engineers on watch. Then there was a second engineer, myself, and then there was a chief engineer, Arnie Hudson. There was also two fitters. There was also two electricians. Quite a crew. There was also probably one or two engine cadets. Okay. So that was the engine crew. The deck crew had a similar sign of setup with a captain, three mates, three watchmen, yeah. cup bosun, and so on. About, about the same amount of people. A, f a fairly standard shipboard arrangement yeah. at the time. Yeah, yeah, pretty standard uh, arrangement at the time. And so uh, the fellow, the fellow who was uh, the, the fellow who was involved in the accident, he, he was. Uh, is, is he, he was an oiler. Okay, so he is part of the engine room team. He was the engine room team. Okay. He was the 8 to 12 oiler. His name was Sean Hatcher. He was from Burgio, Newfoundland. Okay. He was approximately my age. 
which was approximately. <laughs> you got to think oh, now. Oh, boys. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it was around 30 to 35. Okay. We were, we were between 30 and 35, and I think he maybe a little So bit another better. fellow who's working his way through the, the, the maritime yeah. positions. Yeah. Sean had came to the Apollo uh, as a cadet from St. John's Newfoundland Marine School. Quite a few of the uh, cadets, and some of the guys, of course, that ended up staying because they had got introduced as cadets, uh, were from uh, Newfoundland and from the Marine Institute. Quite a few of them had came through. Did, uh, did the Marine so, Institute have the, the same $25 a week price, or was that uh, the nautical institute <laughs> yeah, only? It was, uh, <laughs> that was, uh, well, by, that was 1998 now. I think that the school had, by then, the, the prices were going up, too. I, I when just, I went, I was in school in, you know, 87, 88, 89, okay. 90. 91 through the 90s, on until 2000. Actually, I was in school for a lot of years. Well, if, if, <laughs> if you can do it off and on like that, that's yeah, great. Yeah, it was, it was off and on. Uh, yeah. So, a, okay, so uh, your, your, your fellow, Sean, was his name? Sean, Sean Hatcher. Okay, so you guys, are, you guys are doing Approximately your... the same age and approx... Well, not approximately. He had, he had three children and they were the same age as mine. Okay. All right. So you guys yeah. had a lot in common. Yeah. yeah. Quite and uh, so now take us, if you, if you don't mind, so... What do you guys do? What what what's the what's the catalyst here? Uh, normal operations? Is there an alarm or a scheduled drill or uh, uh, what's what's going on on this day? Uh, Sean was on the eight to twelve watch, so it's the twenty to twenty four hundred watch in the evening, eight to twelve. Everybody was four hours on, eight hours off, and then because we were working t- uh, twelve hour days out there, month on month off, everybody worked four hours overtime out of their watch. So they had two four-hour watches and then four hours of maintenance, you know. Find find something to do. Yeah, find something to do, go hide or whatever the case may be, you know. (laughs) So you had uh, two four-hour watches and one four-hour stint of usually some maintenance that you would do. Okay. And usually it was, again, the team. Okay. Now, Sean Atcher was on the 8 to 12 team. And I believe his, uh, yeah, and his engineer, his, it was, uh, was uh, Mike Stachowiak was, uh, was the 8 to 12 uh, engineer, and that would have been the uh, third assistant engineer. Okay. And then the second assistant engineer was on the 12 to 4. Okay. Yeah, there was two thirds. Two thirds on the eight to twelve and twelve to four, and then the second assistant was on the four to eight, and then the second was on day work, which I was on. I was on, so I was on day work. Sean was on the eight to twelve. Okay, it was almost midnight. Okay, so this is so you're and I was in bed. You're in bed. Okay, I was in bed and I got a call. It said uh, the call was from the uh, twelve to four engineer, I believe, and he called me. Because Sean, the guy that was going off watch, hadn't shown up. So you got three guys in the engine room now. The relieving watch means the twelve, to, the two twelve to four guys who are there waiting to start their watch. It's midnight, probably shortly after. And then you normally have two eight to twelve, the two eight to twelve team who are off going to bed. Well, you all gather in the engine room or in the control room, sorry, and we talk about what went on and we hand over the watch sure yeah normal stuff this is working this isn't working gotta yeah. fix this gotta clean that mm. yeah. anyway um, 
I got a call right around midnight, and uh, they said, you know, Sean didn't show up for the end of the watch, so so something's wrong. So at that time, uh, two people, I think, had already left the engine control room. He was in there by him, himself, I believe. So I got a call. I think probably a chief engineer also got a call, I think. But when I got a call, I... I only threw my pants. I'd just, I'd, I'd fly down the stairs. Well, you're only going one. down the stairs, right? So. Yeah, there's, uh, let's see, one, two, maybe about uh, 200 feet of stairs. Okay. <laughs> so it does take a little bit. The decks are 25 feet apart. Oh, okay. So there's a bit of climbing. There's, there's some there's leg pumping. The, yeah, there's some leg pumping. There is an elevator, but I never used it on the way down. Good for only you. To go Better for your heart. Yeah. yeah. That was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you hop out of bed, you throw on your bed, throw on your jogging pants, pants or whatever. Down, down to the engine room, and when I got to the control room, there was only one person in the control room. There should have been four. Uh, two of the guys were gone out to look to see where Sean went. Okay. And I heard Kevin say, I think he's in the coal hopper space, in the steering flat, in the back, by the watertight doors. So I left, and I went back to the watertight door. The engine control room is on the same flat, same deck as the steering flat. Between those two rooms, the engine control room and the steering flat, was two watertight doors, one on each side of what was called the coal hopper room, because that ship was set up to burn coal. Okay, so old school. <laughs> old school. Yeah. And so, and sorry, just for clarity for the folks back home, when you say watertight door, you say that like it's different than a regular door. Uh, the, the watertight doors are are usually located on ships at specific uh, points to uh, improve, you know, the watertight integrity of the vessel. Sometimes the watertight door is also an access door, and that's the problem. Okay, so before we get into that part, just again to clarify for the folks at home. So when you think of uh, a normal building, if you imagine a normal building, but every so often in that normal building, you put great, like you make mm-hmm. a, a, a better wall and a better door in case water ever get in there uh, because you don't want water to spread. And the door has to be able to stop however many gazillion tons of water, right? So that's... The watertight door needs to be watertight. Watertight door <laughs> needs to be watertight. <laughs> that's All right. right. But, sorry, yeah, for the... <laughs> For the folks at home, is it? it was a hydraulically operated, horizontally sliding door. So a great big, like a... On one big ram, sim, like a, on a wood splitter ram. That's sort of a power on a wood splitter. Okay. And this is the sort of thing when you say uh, horizontal sliding, like a like a giant garage door that slides side. Horizontally, right. yeah. Okay. Yeah, operated by one hydraulic piston. Okay. High, uh, there was controls locally from each side of the door and up above. So so what I wanted to say was, so I left the control room to go to the watertight door. I got to the first watertight door on the engine room side of the coal hopper space and that door was open. I went through, I went through the coal hopper and into there. And that's when I found uh, Sean and Mike, uh, the, one of the other engineers, and one of the other Oilers, and I'm not sure exactly what that who that oiler was. Okay, so you was you, Jason. Anyway, so you found Sean and, Sean and two and, others and, and Mike. Yeah, Sean and two others, and they, by then 
they had they they had him out of the watertight door. It seemed that he had he had been caught in the watertight door. And when I got there, they they just kind of got him out, and I helped them to lay him down on the deck. So hang on. So this fella Sean had been caught in one of these watertight doors. Then when you yeah. say caught, do you mean the door closed on him? Yeah, the door closed on him. So back up here. That means, so when you talked about like a wood splitter ram type thing, so a, a ram driven, a hydraulic ram driven door closed on this poor guy? Yes. Oh my goodness. So do you, where, where did it close on him? Like on his waist, on his so, chest? So because it was, it's a horizontal sliding door, you think that the line of the door is vertical and the combing on the other side is vertical. You did, you did. So, so like this, so from the left, Left shoulder or right shoulder, whatever you want to weigh, to the right hip. Okay, so, so, so diagonally, diagonally across okay. from, this is how the door caught him, diagonally from the shoulder to to hip, through the main body. Okay, so as if he was and trying to squeeze through kind of thing and got caught? Yeah. Is that what, it, okay, oh my goodness. So, so when you get there, they've already... So we've, they've, we've, got, they've got him out of the door and we lay him on the deck and... Uh, when we laid him on the deck, it's kind of your training kind of takes over. And I felt all around, and you could feel how warm he was around his neck and, and that here. But when I went to his, like for pulse on his arm, it wasn't warm like that at all. It was cold. So his extremities were, were, were cold. cool. They were not getting good blood circulating. But his body, like his torso, and you were kind of indicating your it collar bones and your upper chest there was very warm? Yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, I, uh, there, there was no pulse. His arm was cold. And I thought the worst right away. So I said, well, okay, no pulse, not breathing. We start CPR. Now, I'll just segue here, because for folks at home, uh, the way CPR is done now, you sort of don't do anything without masks and rebreathers and a bunch of kit. But in those days, in 1998, CPR would be chest compressions and mouth-to-mouth breasts, where you physically put your mouth on I, somebody. I, when I put my hands on his chest, something felt wrong. I don't remember. It was 20 years ago, but I didn't push. I put my hands on it and I got over him and I didn't push. You did not push. I didn't push because I don't know what it was about it. If it felt something felt wrong anyway. So I tried uh, the mouth to mouth then at that point. Okay. I don't remember ever pushing. I, I, but I do know exactly what happened when I went to uh, uh, breathe uh, air into his mouth. It was as if you'd put your hand... Your, your mouth, sorry, against your your arm and just... Uh, nothing went in at nothing, all? There, nothing accepted any air. You know, I just blew and it's just like putting something against your mouth and blowing on it. There was no... Uh, there was no air did not go inside. Okay, so... So there you are, there's you, trying to give artificial respiration mm -hmm. to this poor guy. Mm -hmm. Nothing's going in. Uh, you've got two guys with you. I, I, I assume they're it, helping there? Uh, one left right away. Well, as soon as I got there, one left. One of them left. To go? I think, Mike. To go uh, get, get, for more help. Get yeah. more help, okay. Uh, get more help. Although yeah. I, there, was, there was help coming at that point. 
so there was me and one other, under, on one other person there. That's about as much as I remember. And then Carol Tipton. She was a medic. So the medic arrived at about that point. Okay, so you had a medic on board the Nordic Apollo. Yes, sir. Okay, was it a medic just for the Nordic Apollo or for the Nordic Apollo and the Roman Guerrilla? Just for Nordic Apollo. Okay, so because that's Because at that time, we were, there, I forget what the number was, but it was around 40 or something like that, that you had to have a medic if you were more than 40 on an installation. Right. And we found ourselves sometimes with uh, extra personnel at, at around this magic number. So they hired on a, a medic. Good news uh, for you guys, because now you've got it. Now you've got yeah, a, 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 a medic. Yeah, a medic. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of helicopter tra- uh, uh, traffic and so on, and just a lot of uh, a lot of admin work to do as well. So when she wasn't patching people up, she was helping us with other things. But anyway, I can get into how great it was to have her on board afterwards. Anyway, anyway, I was never. I was really happy to see Carol, because then she took over, and I, because I. I, I knew, you know, you can, you can tell. It was all warm here and it's cold. There's nothing. So when you say you knew and you could tell, you I, mean I knew he was, he was gone? Yeah. So the medic shows up? The medic showed up. And, and what, she said, she said, Robert, stop doing what you're doing. You know, like I was trying with the breaths and that. And she said, uh, just stop doing it, Robert. It's, it's, it's okay. He's, he's, uh, he, he's, he's done it. Basically... Carol Tipton, uh, you know, she she pr- pronounced him dead. You know, she she knew. Okay, wow. And she also later on explained to me why it was that I said, "What's all this training we take? You know, about artificial respiration and all that." I blew into that. There was nothing. And she said, "It's because Robert, when when that when he was crushed by the watertight door, there, there was blood that entered his lungs, and no doubt all pooled inside his lungs." So there was no capacity in his lungs for any air. So they were so just when, full of fluid. They were full of blood and fluid. Wow. So she explained that to me. And also Carol helped me, uh, you know, the medic. Uh, she was a woman from Newfoundland, a medic and nurse, I guess. You know, a lot of them were nurses and that. And anyway, I know she helped a couple of other people on board or whatever and just to, and helped me too, you know. And, but not only just help you, but because after that night you know of course you didn't sleep everybody was all messed up and yeah that's, and, uh, that's so incredibly she, disturbing uh, she she came and checked on everybody you know every few hours you know she would just knock and then she'd come in and check because but i didn't i only stayed up through the night because i couldn't go to work but as soon as i could go to work i went to work right back to it so you have something to do something yeah. to focus on Wow. Wow. That is crazy. So they, now you've got this person, the medic has taken over, yeah. but you, ha- you have to store this person. So yeah, what do they so, do? They, they call so a then, helicopter for the next yeah. day or? The, we tr- we were, I remember, I remember, it's, it's funny the things that you remember, but the, the, because we couldn't put him in a, uh, we, we, the, the crane operator didn't want to hoist him on a horizontal stretcher because the combings were narrow and he was scared. He didn't want to catch. Uh, it was it was a very tricky operation for the for the crane to bring him out of there. So the only way, really, truly, is you know all up these stairs, these hundred oh, feet of yeah, stairs, the, the, or the yeah, elevator. The, okay. Okay. So, so you, you so did we, have an elevator. So we had an elevator. I do remember that we got in the elevator, a five of us with Sean, and we all pushed up against him. Five of you with Sean. So, so he wouldn't, like four of you plus Sean? To, to hold him up. 
and basically prop him into place. Oh, my goodness. We went up and we drove up and we went to the hospital. And then we put him in the hospital. And then, the, and then you know, then the, the next day, you know, the, the, uh, the investigation started. And the RCMP came out. There's the pecking order there first, you know. So they, they came in and talked to a couple of people I don't. I don't remember if I gave a statement to the RCMP or not. I know I gave our statement to the uh, two statements, one to the Nova Scotia Offshore Petroleum Board and one to Transport Canada. Yeah. So for the occupational health and safety of that operation, it was the Petroleum Boards were in charge of that. Yes, they would so, have been in charge of the offshore, yeah. yeah. So the, the Nova Scotia Department of Labor didn't show up like they normally do, or uh, Transport Canada for federal workers didn't show up like they would normally do if it's federal workers. Right. This was an offshore petroleum board thing, so a man named Dave and Scratch went out there. I've, I've, I've met Dave once or twice, just yeah. for the again for the folks at home. No, so offshore petroleum board. Typically, uh, like if there's an incident at a workplace, uh, you know, if you're building an apartment building in, in the city or something like that, and there's an incident, uh, then you've got the the, the, the labor board, the, the hmm. uh, what do they call them now? Uh, the Nova Scotia Department of Labor, but I think the compensation is hooked in with yeah, that. They yeah, have, they have a new name now. Anyway, it's occupational health and safety, and it's either the provincial people or federal people show up, depending on the jurisdiction. This jurisdiction, because it was offshore oil industry, was the Nova Scotia offshore. Right, so they have their own sort of regulator. Right, yeah. okay. All right, so all right. So they show up, they do the investigation, they take the statements. Mm. Uh, does that, uh, does, the, does the poor, uh, does the deceased uh, get loaded onto a helicopter the and next they day, they fly him uh, back? That, that, well, it, that day, but it was from midnight, you know, by noon. Right, so, they, and they flew him home yeah, to for, yeah. for his family, and uh, oh, wow, yeah, that's... So, uh, that. But, you know, uh, so a couple of things. Like, I mean, at that time, I, I think the company was uh, Pan-Canadian then. That operation had started as a LASMO thing, mm -hmm. and then Pan-Canadian had taken it over, I believe. So the, the oil company was Pan-Canadian. The company I was working for was Nordic Canadian, which was a Canadian company. The ship was a Liberian ship. So it was a, like you were work, working for a, like a crewing agency or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And they put you out there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of uh, like a crewing agency. But the crewing agency was only crewing one ship. <laughs> and it was Nordic. So the, so the, the money, all that was coming, it was, it was coming from Norway. You know, the, the Norwegians uh, owned this ship. They had registered in, in, in Liberia, and it was a Canadian oil company, which is not that uh, popular or whatever. No, but, there aren't too but, many But of those. you know what? Penn Canadian was big over in the UK, too, and in the North Sea when I was there. There was lots of fields were run by Penn Canadian. Right on. Anyway, I thought that they did, that, uh, that you know, they, they really were appropriate, you know. So they, they, you thought they handled it well? Yeah, I thought that they really handled That's it well. Like, and even talking with a fellow by the name of Peter Nugent uh, later on, who was part of Nordic Canadian shipping and whatever, uh, I, I thought that, that it was handled pretty good. Uh, you know, like, I mean, representatives from the company flew to Newfoundland, spoke with his uh, parents and so on, and spoke about... Uh, and uh, made, made the arrangement. And made, made, it, you I know, think. it's actually nice to hear that because it's not very often that people uh, get out of the industry oh. and, and say how an incident was handled nicely. Oh. Usually, there's a lot of usually, usually uh, companies. You know, they don't. They want to. They don't want it to look bad on them. And 
But that company, no doubt, was uh, charged, you know, for or somebody was, was charged. When somebody dies in an accident, there's always going to be somebody, yeah. always somebody charged. So anyway, they, I didn't have any kind of feeling at all that they were running from this or whatever. They stepped forward, I think, took, uh, put their big boy pants on, you know, and uh, let's fix it. Yeah, uh, let's we we did wrong. Let's and, try and, to do and, better. And I think, and this is what part of what. I want to do today, and what and what you when you asked me from the beginning if we're going to fix it, you know, I I just want to be uh, I just I guess would raise awareness to that sort of thing, and and I like to see that that you know never would never happen again, you know, anything like that. So just out of curiosity, uh, and I haven't seen any reports or anything on this. Oh, I have heard of this incident before, mm-hmm. but I didn't know all the details of it. And thank you for that. That's uh, that's mm-hmm. quite a story. Uh, did they ever figure out why why the door closed on him? Did he try and there, sneak? You know what. The, the the bottom line is he tried to go through a watertight door that was not fully open. There was some safety features that were added to that door later. Maybe, but there was part, some complications. You, you, do you think because, partly as a result of this? Oh, absolutely, one hundred. I don't think it. One hundred percent. It was part of this. Okay. They added a strobe light. Oh, so that, that when the door is closing, there's like there's a strobe. Like and an when you go on a ship thing. today, you'll see that. Yeah. But the other thing is back. You know, back then the ship was built in the mid seventies, and when ships are built and then new things come in, sometimes they have, as you know, this grandfather yeah. stuff. You know, yeah. so some things get grandfathered in, and some safety things you have to change right away. And I think there might have been a certain amount of this grandfathering thing. Again, it was not a Canadian vessel either. You know, it was a Liberian vessel, and I know that ships internationally have standards. Marpol, STCW, Solas, all these things. Yeah. But uh, this uh, this ship was a little bit old, not Canadian flag, a few small things. But if you would have went, you are a pretty good person on identifying hazards. And uh, I certainly try. <laughs> yeah. If if I would have gave you a list on the Nordic Apollo and said, here you go, then. You go around and write down 50 hazards. You walk around the ship here. I'm going to give you five days to do this. You go around and you try to find wherever it is, you know, 50. I don't know if you'd have put that on the list. That watertight door closed so slow. So, and by the way, just for, again, for the folks at home, these doors, they open and close on purpose. It's very, very slow. Like you can see it coming. It's, it's not, when you think of an elevator closing, it's not even that fast. It's nowhere near that fast. It's more like uh, an elevator through molasses or something. Like it's a very, very slow. It's slower than a, like a, like a wood splitter advancing on, on, on the knife. It's way slower than that. I mean, it's, it's this slow, like this. Yeah. See? Yeah. See? Yeah, yeah. Very slow. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that's how slow it is. Yeah. And okay, uh, Robert, uh, we'll say thank you kindly for your time. And uh, we'll have you again on the show sometime if you're up for it. Well, thanks a lot. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much. Bulkheads, then you have ships that sink. So you are there for a reason. But... integrity. Yeah. So I'll talk a little bit about the operation of it or whatever, even though, you know, there was a report made on this. And I also have, I, I'm not, sh- I didn't read the report either. There's thousands of pages. I don't know what the final thing was. I, I know that they finally said, you know, the watertight door, what was not, there's no way that it was fully open when he tried to go through. There's absolutely no way. They made some changes. Th- that door never had a strobe light before 
indicating that the door was closing. Also, it could reverse from opening to closing without a time delay. When they reinstalled the door, when they put the door back in, the door, when it was, the door was opening, in order to get it to close again, as soon as you reverse the handle to go to close, there, there was a five second time delay. During that time, the strobe was going and there was an audible alarm, but oh, nothing was happening for about four or five seconds. And then the door started to close. Okay. So a time delay got locked into the operating schematic or whatever. So you mean you mean after this incident? This is one after of the things. Yeah, this is one yes, of the things sir. that got corrected. This so is, this this is was, was some of the things that were correction. So so when you say, you know, like so, no doubt the report thought that you know there was some safety features on the door that they felt should have been on the door. Certainly, if all those safety features would have been on the door, this probably this would not probably have would not have happened. Yeah. If there's if he would have went through a door which was fully open, also it probably it wouldn't, wouldn't have happen. happened. There was many things that if it wouldn't have been, this wouldn't have happened. Well, that's that's the game with uh, with marine emergency cheese. training and with and, and part of the reason we do this <laughs> podcast is because we're trying to pull some of these lessons out there. And and although it, it it's it's a tragedy, it's terrible that somebody had to die, uh, but at least there are some lessons learned from it. And it sounds like... Uh, it, there in, was in, some changes yeah, made. Some regulatory changes. Regulatory which, changes. To make it safer for everybody else. I don't know if there was regulatory changes made or if regulations were applied on board. Ah, uh, okay. Exactly. So, but However, however... And the, but they made the changes to the other watertight doors too, obviously. But my 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 point is, I don't. It it could be that that those regulatory changes were not required or whatever, and they were. And the reason it wasn't done because nobody th really thought of it. Nobody. They probably went around and inspected and said, "Well, a door like this is supposed to have a a strobe light or a time delay light or whatever." Oh, a ship's built. 1976, okay, well, it yeah. doesn't apply to this one, you know? So I'm not sure if that was the case or not. But certainly, the company made these changes afterwards, regulatory or not, you know? But I see now, but now, of course, when I come to a watertight door, and I do a lot of inspections on ships, I tell the boys, and I try the door, and I see this strobe like now, and I see these alarms now that weren't there before. And and I and I tell the guys to never ever go through a watertight door unless, unless it's, it's fully open. All the way open. And I also tell them why. Yeah. Well, you've certainly got the pedigree and the story to back it up. So uh, actually that's probably a good spot right there, uh, Robert, unless you had anything else to add to the to the story. I remember Sean telling me about him going in the woods and uh in Burgio and going going out the way out back backpacking by himself, you know, yeah. shooting a caribou and deboning it all, you know, and then putting it all in the pack and coming down from the mountains, you know. Actually probably jacking a caribou. But anyway. Oh, that's unofficial. That's only allegedly. But well. you know what? <laughs> uh, and he he spoke so uh, about these uh, stories. And I remember him telling me these stories and I thought what a what a great uh, great thing. Anyway, uh, that was a that was a, f a fun a fun part of Sean, and he was a good uh, he was a good guy, and he was a hard worker. 
He was a hard worker, and he was trying to do his his best for his family back home. Well, sounds like a good man, and uh, yep. sorry sorry to have lost him to the world. Mm. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much, Robert, for taking the time with us today and telling what is a bit of a tough story, mm-hmm. um, uh, having been there, and uh, for a tough one for you to retell, but it's really appreciated. And uh, we're at least thankful that um, although although something terrible happened, uh, some positive change came of it. Uh, yeah. And whether whether the regulations were in place before or not, they're they're in place now. Well, certainly, I was his direct supervisor. Yeah. So I haven't forgotten that either. No, that's a tough one. Okay, uh, Robert, uh, we'll say thank you kindly for your time. And uh, we'll have you again on the show sometime if you're up for it. Well, thanks a lot. All right. Thank you so much. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and almost anywhere you can find podcasts. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and help us move up the charts with a five-star rating. We like comments and reviews, so we'd love to hear from you. If you have a story to tell or know of someone who does, please contact us at Legacy Survival Stories, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also find us at Legacy Survival Stories dot buzzsprout dot com. Legacy Survival Stories.